Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and today is the day we issue report cards. The purpose of a report card is to provide a picture of how someone is performing in regards to the critical skills and knowledge they will need to be successful. And Democracy in Color is releasing today our report card on the Democratic Party Super PACs the organizations that raise and spend hundreds of millions of dollars to elect Democratic candidates. These super PACs have already raised more than $600 million, and not just from major donors, who also should be demanding higher standards, but lots of regular people have also contributed their hard-earned dollars, and they are counting on the party and its ecosystem supporting organizations to do the right thing, to win the White House, flip the Senate, and hold on to control in the House of Representatives. We do these report cards to shine a spotlight on how things are going and to try to improve performance. But, spoiler alert, it is largely a disappointing picture. The grades range from D plus to A, and it's clear that tens of millions of dollars are already being wasted on unproven and ineffective strategies that are not supported by an analysis of the underlying data. And unfortunately, it's the largest and biggest spending groups that get the worst grades. The good news is that even with the election fast approaching, there is still time for significant improvements to be made before the ultimate test in November, especially in terms of winning the closely contested Senate races that will be pivotal to really being able to actually rebuild this country come January into allowing poor Ruth Bader Ginsburg to finally retire. Joining me for this conversation is a parent of a young child for whom report cards will be an increasingly important reality in the years to come. My co-host, Charlene Chang. Hi, Charlene. Now that you're homeschooling, are you giving report cards to your daughter? Hey, Steve. Well, to be accurate, we are doing distance learning through her public school. But yes, since, as I've said before, she's not a fan of distance learning, we are doing supplementing with some homeschooling. So that's the reality that we're in now, like a lot of families. And it's funny that you should mention that it's a focus of our show today is report cards. Because once my daughter found out that it was going to be distance learning again this fall, just like it was last spring, one of the first things she said to me is, oh, I I hear that there's not going to be report cards. Is that true? Because of COVID and distance learning. And she was pretty excited about that. She's like, I hope it's true. Can you find out? Because I really hope it's true. And it's like, it's almost like, you know, her eyes lit up like she had just zeroed in and found like the one of the very few silver linings of this whole crazy time. She was like, yay, no report cards. Yeah. Because um, one of the things school, the reason why schools are either have already decided not to do report cards or are considering it seriously is because during this time, so many families have different circumstances at home. So all the inequities of education even before all of this are now exasperated by the fact that some families can afford to get support or one or two parents can really support the kid at home. And then there are families where both parents have to be out working or cannot support the kids at all. So no report cards probably are going to happen in real life in our home. And But you did give me a good idea. Maybe I need to do parent report cards. And my daughter will thank you for that. Yeah, well, don't, don't blame it on me. <laughs> I'll say Uncle Steve had a great idea. So yeah, so let's turn to our topic for today's episode, which is Democracy in Color's report card on the Democratic Party's super PACs. And 
again, a reminder that we just released those today. Very exciting. This is the third time since 2014 that Democracy in Color and our team that we've issued a public report like this on the Democratic Party and its ecosystems spending and strategy. The full report can be found at democracyincolor.com. We really encourage all our listeners to please go take uh, a few moments, check it out, and please do spread the word about it because our team worked really hard on it and nothing like it exists. I believe we are still the only organization that regularly does this type of report to hold um, the organizations accountable and really give donors and the public a sense of what's going on and what they're doing right and what they're doing wrong. By the way, there's going to be an article coming out in the Washington Post a few days uh, after today's release of the report cards about the report cards. And that piece will be offering more broad insight into democratic spending patterns and problems. And furthermore, as part of the report card week, Steve, you'll be having a column coming out in the nation and that will be today or again in the next few days. And Steve's piece will be exploring some of the key lessons and insights from this grading process. So Steve, you had said that the grades from this recent report card on the Democratic Party and its super PACs are disappointing. And it's funny, and it just, it reminds me like, that's where that I think I could keep in mind as a parent, this is disappointing, this is unexpected. So can you, Steve, help us break down what we learned uh, what you found in this report card process. Yeah, so I think trying to um, not get too bogged down in all of the, you know, the weeds and the details of it. So trying to, the big takeaways, right? And so I think there are three big headlines of what we found. Lack of transparency, feelings, not facts, and too pale, too male. Too pale, too male. I can't, can't wait to hear more about that. Although I, that's pretty much how I feel about summary of a lot of the challenges of this country. But yeah, I can see how that also applies to the democratic ecosystem. So uh, yeah, okay. If you can talk a bit more about those categories to help listeners understand a little bit more about what you mean. Yeah, so let me, let me try to break it down. So transparency. So you want to know where your money is going and how it's being used, right? That's a core component of accountability, feedback, and effective functioning of a high-performing organization. When I was thinking about how to explain this concept and illustrate it for people, I, I thought it might be useful to share the story of our friend Ludovic Blaine, head of the California Donor Table, and his uh, saga with his cat pants. <laughs> so Ludovic has become famous on social media for being anti-cat, not just pro-dog, but anti-cat. So this is ongoing, like years now, back and forth, and people will post cat memes to his page and he'll respond. It's just never ending and a source of amusement to many of us. And so what happened in this situation is that first, someone sent to Tram Win, the superstar organizer in Virginia with New Virginia Majority, some cat pants, and she posted a video of receiving them. And Tram is actually afraid of cats. And she will post, she sees a cat, she'll like scream and whatnot. And so that kind of kicked this whole thing off. So then Crystal Zermanio and I got the idea to send Ludovic some cat pants. This is the, how people function and make meaning and connection in the world of you know quarantine, right? And so it became this huge thing on social media. So he did a little video that he had received them. He said, no, I'm not putting them on. 
And then someone's like, I would pay good money to see Ludovic wearing those cat pants. And so then I started a GoFundMe campaign to get people to give money. So awesome, by the way. (laughs) It was like one of my best organizing efforts. Right, right. So into it. So we created GoFundMe to give money to the school where Ludovic's son goes if he would put on the cat pants. And then there were dozens and dozens of comments and contributions. And we raised more than $3,000. And he did, in fact, post a video on social media of him wearing the cat pants, lounging in them, which I thought were quite becoming to him. And so it was just quite the, you know, fun, kind of crazy, quirky thing, you know, but to bring this back to transparency and the, the really the human behavior elements of it and organizational functioning, it was all premised on knowing where your money was going and that it would produce the desired results. So what got people to give was knowing it was for a good cause and that it would influence his behavior, right? If you didn't hear anything back or you just sent money in, you weren't quite clear where it was going or was he even going to do anything, that would not have been an effect. That would not have worked in that way. But that's transparency. And so if you extrapolate that out to the far more serious situation of spending hundreds of millions of dollars to impact voting behavior, you need to have transparency to know where the money is going and whether it's producing results. Are people putting on the pants, right? So transparency is a core component and it's very lacking in most of the Democratic Party and its supporting organizations. Second headline is feelings, not facts. And this really has to do with relying on gut instincts over data and math. I mean, a lot of people in politics celebrate their like expertise with data and technology and this and that, but you don't actually see it playing itself out the way that you would expect and that we needed to. And so in politics, you want to use data to make smart decisions around what groupings of people to target. To use like a silly example, if you're you're selling black hair care products, you don't go door to door with your Afro sheen and Afro pics in an all white neighborhood, right? You use data to find where your target market actually is. And this is tied to lack of transparency and accountability because if people aren't demanding detailed explanations of how and why the money is being spent, then the people spending it can rely just upon their opinions and their their gut instincts rather than what the data actually shows. That's another reason why we do these report cards to shine the spotlight. And then the third headline is that the democratic ecosystem is still too pale and too male. Right. I wrote a piece for The Nation in 2016 talking about the near apartheid state of Democratic Party leadership. People of color make up almost half of all Democratic voters. And in many places, there are a majority of new Democratic voters. That's 7 million teenagers of color have turned 18 since Trump got elected. And the majority of children in this country are people of color. And yet, of the 10 largest super PACs, those that have $20 million or more in funds raised, nine are run by Caucasians, seven by white men. And I hate that we have to keep saying this, but it's it's not just about representation or quote-unquote political correctness. It's about political effectiveness and impact. And to illustrate this, when Obama was running, we created what was, in fact, the country's first super PAC, Vote Hope. And we ran the very first ads in the South Carolina primary in 2008. And they were radio ads with black women having a conversation with one another about this Obama guy. And it was set in a church choir 
and in a black beauty salon. But if people running these packs have never been to a black church, don't understand the dynamics, haven't been to a black barbershop or beauty salon and heard the conversations and the rhythms and the dynamics, it's very hard to devise tailored spending plans that will resonate with people who hang out in those spaces. Yeah, that's a it's a really good point. I think as I was just listening to you, I was thinking for the next set of report cards, there should be a question, uh, especially to the heads of organizations. And the questions should be something like, have you ever been inside a black church? Have you ever been inside a black salon? Have you ever actually talked to a black person for more than, I don't know, 10 minutes, one on one? Um, right. There's kind of this thing in the black community with people. Do you know anybody um, black? <laughs> right. Well, they'll mock white <laughs> politicians who go to a black church, but then they can't clap along in rhythm. Right. And so it's another dynamic. There. Oh, it's like when you were, it was also hearing you earlier, you were saying the problem with relying on feelings over data. And you were saying something about people end up trying to go with their gut. But, and then the, the problem right now is the majority of those guts are, <laughs> I know, guts got the image, are, are of uh, white people. And, 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 but there's some seriousness to that, which is that they're, even if they feel like, well, I'm going to trust my instincts based on what I think I know, right. it is through a lens that is not majority, not culturally competent in other cultures, right? They don't have the lens of what other people in this country that are different than them are, um, what appeals to them and how they think, their, their worldview and what matters yep. to them. Okay, so let's dive in a bit into the substance of these grades and how we arrived at those grades. As my daughter sometimes says, you know, well, well why, why did I get that? <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, if there's certain grades on a report cards that, uh, you know, a little bit sub subpar, she'll say, but why, how did she do that? She's mean, you know? So <laughs> yeah, we're getting, some, we're getting some of that feedback as well. Yeah, I know it's not very different. So that's why I wanted to make sure that we provide the evidence and the uh, provide understanding on how we arrived and giving certain grades in certain categories to these organizations. And for that, let's bring in our data scientist, Dr. Julie Martinez Ortega. for Dr. Martinez Ortega. Hi, y'all. I'm here. How's it going? Hey, Julie. Do you have a few minutes to talk about the wonderful report cards that you helped create to grade the performance of Democratic Super PACs? Sure. It'll uh, help get my mind off my own uh, teenager's report cards. So yeah, let's let's talk about something besides that. <laughs> okay, great. Great. I thought we'd have you help us explain exactly who is being graded and what they're being graded on. And then we can discuss why they got certain grades, including some of them having received poor grades. And sometimes like my child, like I was explaining before, where she gets, I wouldn't say a poor grade, but you know, a grade that's lower than she wanted or was expecting. I'd like to have you share with our listeners how these organizations can improve and earn a better grade. Sure, sure. Yes, this is all bringing back memories of um, having taught college classes. And what I didn't realize people could do, which is come back and ask for a better grade <laughs> by making their case. And sometimes that works, but most of the time it doesn't. So, all right. So here's what we did. We looked at some of the biggest and richest parts of the Democratic Party family. And specifically, we focused on those super PACs that have raised $20 million uh, so far, or more, of course. And um, yeah, th that was sort of the focus of this uh, 2020 report card. 
And I just, I wanted to, sorry to interrupt. I wanted to just um, step in and just ask you or Steve, if you could just give a quick summary and definition again of what a super PAC is. Yeah, so it's it gets tossed around a lot. So basically it's an, it's an organization that can, in its essence, raise and spend unlimited amounts of money in order to advance its cause, to elect candidates. And so they came into being in the context of stricter campaign finance uh, contribution limits, right? You can only give, like, it gets $2,800 to the uh, particular candidate, but, you know, people can give millions and millions of dollars to a super PAC. And then they work in parallel and in tandem, legally separate, but synergistically aligned to advance that cause, to elect the person for president, to elect somebody for Senate, spend the ads, et cetera. So it's a big money operation that works in support of and alongside uh, the Democratic Party official apparatus. Thank you. So, Julie, can you share with us what were some of the most important findings? Yeah. So as Steve said, these PACs are set up to spend money to help Democrats win elections. Those are the ones we looked at the Dem side. So in terms of saving our country right now, the two most important battles are obviously winning the White House and flipping control of the U.S. Senate. So we looked at their spending um, through that lens. And what we found was that in terms of the Senate, in too many cases, the PACs are spending money in the wrong states. And in terms of the presidency, millions of dollars are being spent in the right states, but the spending's targeting the wrong people in those states. Okay, so let's start with the Senate, Julie, since that'll be key to actually governing and repairing all the damage in this country that's been done. And I wanted to, yeah, just remind everyone that the Democrats need a net pickup of at least three seats to take control. Is that right? Yes, three seats net. I mean, we're probably going to lose, frankly, the seat in Alabama, which was won in 2017 by Doug Jones in a, in a low turnout off-year election. And so we're going to need to win four, and if we lose Alabama, so it's a net pickup of three, and then plus the White House, and then Vice President Kamala Harris would be the tiebreaker, giving Democrats control. So, Julie, what did you find? You said uh, in the case of the Senate, the super PACs are spending money in the wrong states and which states should they be targeting and investing in? So back in January, Steve uh, published a column that I helped him with and we created for that um, an index with multiple factors of quantitative and qualitative um, data that helped us to assess which states would be the most winnable, just factually, right? We looked at data from past elections to see how close the contest had been, used census data to assess population trends, existing civic engagement infrastructure in those places, a number of things, as well as polling data. And out of that, we ranked the states in order of winnability. And uh, for today's purposes, uh, we'll highlight Colorado, Arizona, Georgia, and Maine being the states that, you know, really sort of top out that list. And let me guess, that's not where the the Democratic super PACs are spending their money. Is that right? Well, so yes and no. They're way overspending in some states and completely underinvesting in others, right? So perhaps not surprising to anybody, um, it's the wider states that are being overinvested in and the people of color heavy states that are frankly being starved in, in some cases. And since there's so much resistance in society, despite everything happening today, to being racially specific, I think it really bears repeating that people of color in general and African-Americans in particular 
are absolutely the most dependable Democratic voters, right? I mean, often we see them at 90 plus uh, percent voting for Democratic candidates on the ballot, right? So if Democrats want to win elections, they must maximize their advantage among voters of color in the states where they're playing. So in terms of the Senate races, we gave the largest super PAC, which is Senate Majority PAC, a C minus. And they're the largest Democratic aligned PAC in the country. They've got nearly $200 million raised already this cycle. What leaps out when you analyze their spending is how they've spent most of this year, frankly, over investing in the states like Iowa, but completely ignoring uh, an incredible opportunity for pickups in Georgia. And Georgia has two winnable Senate seats up this year, which is something that, you know, for some reason really hasn't gained traction out there. Um, and so there's really, despite us really searching for looking around to get some information on why that spending pattern would be as it is right now, we're completely unable to identify any coherent data driven explanation for those choices. Right. And so we ding them in the grading for that, frankly. And now we should note that in the past couple of weeks, they have since spent $2 million uh, in Georgia to help uh, Asif, who's the white candidate. Remember, there's a, or let me point out for those who might not remember, there's a white candidate running in Georgia as Democrat and an African-American running in Georgia for the other Senate seat. There are lots of people running, but these two are sort of the, the prime contenders there on the Democratic side. There's still been zero dollars that we've been able to identify from SMP uh, directly to Warnock, who's the African-American candidate. And that's a problem. And that all feeds into why they received um, just a C minus. Yeah, let me let me just add a couple of things about this disparity between Iowa and Georgia and why it's important and what it says about the larger problems in the democratic ecosystem. Iowa is a overwhelmingly white state right? 90% of the population was voters are white. And it's a state where Democrats lost by nine points in 2016. Georgia, which is close to half people of color, the Democrats lost by just 5% in 2016. So it's a much more competitive state if you're looking at that basis. And then you add an additional data set of looking in 2018, the Democrat who ran for governor in Iowa, lost by almost 3%. Stacey Abrams in 2018 lost by just 1%, lost in quotes again. Um, but still, even if you accept those results, the how close she came was much closer than the Democrat in Iowa came. So when you look at that underlying data set, it would logically suggest that we're on the cusp of being able to win in Georgia in a statewide election. And so that you should then double down and add additional resources in that place like that. But as Julie was saying, up until August 1st, there have been $0 to Georgia and $8 million spent in Iowa. And so this is also where the issues of data and lack of transparency and the racial cultural competence factor into all of this. So the coin of the realm in terms of data is really just polling is what a lot of these super PACs do, which is just a current snapshot, which is a useful data point, but it's not a robust set of data to dive into in a deep sense. You would want to look at, you would think, 
those pieces, 2016, how close was it? 2018, how close was it? What additional developments have been in terms of the population shifts, in terms of voter registration numbers? Been 700,000 people have been registered to vote in Georgia since the 2018 election. All of that should also factor into the, into the situation. But more importantly, this is where the cultural competence piece comes in. You have to understand the dynamics around how Stacey Abrams catapulted to the position that she was in and came so close to winning. The polls in her race, she was not in a a commanding uh, a lead in the primary election because there's two people named Stacey running, I don't think was an accident. And half of black voters were undecided and Stacey's margin was like, you know, it was like 15, 20%, but it was not an over, you know, uh, woman would have became. But when ads came, went out and people learned that Stacey was the Stacey Abrams was the black candidate and the person who came from that community was championing those issues and those values. She soared in terms of her support, in terms of her outcomes, in terms of her his, you know historic performance. But it took that level of information to be conveyed. So if you have that level of understanding and that level of cultural competence, you would then look at this Georgia Senate race where Reverend Warnock is running. Raphael Warnock is the current pastor of the church where Martin Luther King was the pastor. He is the literal pastoral successor to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And he's a strong social justice advocate, and he's a, 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 a you know very important civil rights leader and figure within the state. But a lot of people don't know him yet. And so if you understood what happened with Stacey's race, if you understood the psychology and the dynamics and the uh, behavioral track record and history of black voters, you would be pouring money into Georgia now to educate black voters around who Reverend Warnock is, to boost his, his standing, to boost his numbers in the polls, to give him more momentum, and to have him be able to follow that trajectory that Stacey Abrams did. But that requires a level of cultural competence that's harder to manifest in the spending of all of these millions of dollars when the leadership is too pale and too male. Okay, so from a data science perspective, it's critical to look at the historical and the broader contextual evidence to put the present picture in its proper context, right? So it's like that famous question, is the the glass half empty or is it half full? So if you look at the historical data, you'll learn that uh, whether someone just drank half the water in the glass, right? it would then be half empty, right? But also if someone just filled it up with water, then you'd see it as being half full. Right, so that's why if you look at 2018, 2016, to give you a picture of where things stand in 2020, that does not fully come just from a current polling snapshot. And even the polling numbers really suggest you should be investing in in Georgia. So help me with this, Steve, the analogy. So then is the glass half full or half empty? (laughs) Because <laughs> I've always been one of these people who's like, uh, I don't know, I don't know. The bottom line is, people need to be funding Warnock's race. <laughs> Let me just break it down and fill it up, fill it up to the top, fill it up to the yeah, top. It's half full because it was empty, and wow. then 2016, 2018, what happened in those races started to fill it up. So we are close to having a full glass, if people would pour millions of dollars into Georgia. I got it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the Stacey race in 2018 primed the pump. Let's just move to another analogy here, right? Um, It got everything laid out, set the table, prepared the way for Warnock to come in and win that Senate race. 
if we continue doing the things that were done in 2018 in terms of heavy investment in a smart way in Georgia. We need to take advantage of that opportunity. I got that. I just wanted to remind everyone and all our listeners that this full report card is available on our website, democracyandcolor.com. And again, it's a full look picture at the spending on Senate races by the super PACs of the Democratic Party, as well as on the presidential race. Speaking of the presidential race, let's pivot to that. Julie, what did we find there? Um, what did you find there since you're pivotal and primarily working on this report card? And what do you mean by the right states, wrong people? Okay, so in the presidential race, what really stands out is the spending of one of the largest super PACs, which is American Bridge PAC, also known as AD PAC. And there, what we found out was that geographically, at least the states that they're targeting are logical, right? So that blue wall, as they say, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, uh, the ones that we never should have lost in the first place back in 2016. So those are among the right places, but the people within those places that are the focus of the incredible spending being made by ABPAC are the wrong people in those places. And it all gets back to what went wrong in 2016 and whether your understanding and you know why the about why the wall fell is based on data or not, frankly. If you analyze why Obama won those three states, but yet Clinton lost them in 16, and then you also look at why Democrats won almost all of the statewide races in those states in 2018, you get a clear roadmap of how to win and which people in those states you have to focus on in order to win. So first, uh, African-Americans, right? In 2016, through a combo of underinvestment as well as overt voter suppression, uh, African-American turnout dropped to a near 20-year low there, right? And remember that Black voters are the most Democratic of all, as we said earlier in the um, recording. So if Black voters had turned out at Obama levels in 2016, Clinton would have won, right? So second, and hardly anybody talks about this on the airwaves or in print, except for Steve, is that you have these third and fourth party defections, right? So you look at Jill Stein, the increase for Jill Stein in both Michigan and Wisconsin was actually greater than Trump's margin of victory there. And if you get back those voters, then you win in those states. And the third group to target is college educated white voters. What we saw in 2018 in those midterm elections was Democratic gains among college-educated whites in a big way. White people who, for whatever reason, went and took a chance on Trump in 2016, discounted his more extreme rhetoric and went ahead and supported him back in 16. So today, all of the polling and electoral data that we've got available shows us that a large, large segment of those people are now horrified by what Trump is doing to the country. And they've returned uh, back to their right minds. They are willing to support Democrats in significant numbers. And this group has grown relative to their white counterparts without degrees. And that's an important trend line to remember. Those are, that's a good um, point and good thing to keep in mind makes me want to feel hopeful in times where it's hard to feel hopeful. So let me get this right. So the groups that they should be targeting, again, are African-Americans, the voters who voted third or fourth party in 2016, uh, namely a lot of the voters who voted for Jill Stein. 
and also college-educated whites. You're hoping that there's a large percentage of them who have now been really repulsed by what's happened over the past four years in that category. So that would be the smart way to spend money. So Julie, what is it that you found in terms of what the PACs are actually doing in terms of spending, you know, in terms of targeting groups or voters? Well, we found that they're not being very smart, right? So American Bridge is spending millions of dollars on the people that are least likely to vote Democratic and who the Dems don't even need to win. So that's why they got a D plus. So in their own promotional materials, they say, quote, American Bridge just announced a major $20 million wave of TV and radio in Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin to weaken Trump's support with his base of small town rural voters, end quote. Okay, that's not African-Americans. That's not Jill Stein voters. That is not college-educated whites. They're not going after people of color at all. I mean, I'm, let's, well, maybe that's a bit extreme. I'm sure there are some out in these rural areas. But even worse, right, they're spending millions and millions of dollars chasing the wrong white people. It would be one thing if this were a project using, you know, a few residual dollars on the side to clean up some potential Dem voters who fell through the cracks. But this is one of the largest pots of money out there, right, that's being spent to move Democratic voters to the ballots. And it needs to be focused on the priority votes in order for us to be able to win. Yeah, I was trying to think of an analogy around how to illustrate the kind of, frankly, the wrongheadedness of this. And I was thinking that it'd be like you know, they used to, uh, the beef industry, you know, those big ad campaigns, you know, beef, it's what's for dinner, right? So they took, you know, they were running those ads and they just targeted vegans, right? It just doesn't make any sense in terms of your message and then the audience who will be receptive to it. Yeah, and I live I live in Berkeley, so I know, <laughs> I know I know a lot of vegans, and there's no way that uh, if you target those ads at them that you would get anywhere. So, so Julie, is there any good news to share in this process of putting together report cards? And are there any star pupils of the class that you can tell us about? <laughs> Yes, yes. So um, I'd really hold out uh, Tom Steyer and Stacey Abrams. Uh, Next Gen Climate, which is run by Tom Steyer and Fair Fight, um, is run by Stacey Abrams. And those two have really done uh, you know, great work in terms of those three big pillars that, that Steve spoke to earlier. So we've talked a lot on the pod about the work that Stacey Abrams is doing. So it's not surprising Fair Fight setting the standard in terms of transparency. They're really using data in some smart ways and they're playing a critical coordination role in efforts to track and fight back against the attacks on uh, the vote in states across the country. So they got an A. I, I was just smiling hearing you mention Stacey's name again because I kind of joked to myself about how like if I realized like with our podcast, if it was a drinking game, every time we mentioned <laughs> Stacey, you could take a drink and, uh, you know, you'd be pretty tipsy. But but the thing is, like, can we help that the woman is so rad, you know, and she's just doing such great work. And, and, and it's just it's it's just factual there. You know, you were grading on the same rubric and looking at their same parts of their work. And it's just great to know that yeah. well, and, they're, and I think they're doing the right thing. Right. Because like, I've been doing a lot of analysis around uh, who's been fighting back against these attacks on just the basic machinery of democracy, you know, going after the post office and all these lawsuits, all the things that are right, the trend to undermine the election. And all of these major national players have been saying that the key organization that's providing the, you know, the infrastructure to fight back and track this and it is fair fight which, you know, it, A, is a testament to Stacey, but B, 
Fair Fight's a brand new organization. And so what were we doing beforehand, which is a really a, an alarming thought to think about. So we have to be really grateful that they are out there playing this role. Right. Yeah. So an, another quite pleasant surprise was uh, NextGen. So they lay out their plans in a really clear, understandable way on their website and public documents. Uh, they very much use data to focus their spending. I've actually met and worked with uh, some of the folks from their data team, always been impressed with their work, their top-notch folks. They have a very coherent, logical, data-driven approach, and their focus is very clear. It's on young people, and that's a obviously very promising population to be targeted. So um, they got an A- in the scores. And I was also really excited in the process of doing the, um, the background research on this project uh, to learn about Progressive Turnout Project. I didn't know a lot about them previously. They're also fairly new. And they're doing a really good job as a grassroots uh, group focused on voter turnout and in states, really important key states around the country. They're very transparent, very data-driven as well. And they make better use of their money uh, by focusing on direct voter contact rather than spending a lot on TV ads, which is unfortunately a common practice among most of the super PACs out there. And they also got an A minus for their work as well. And we, we should also point out uh, that one of the organizations, Priorities USA, that they have been doing a very smart and effective investment in terms of supporting litigation to protect voting rights. And so they were supporters of critical litigation that's now paying off in really important places, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Georgia. Just on September 1st, a federal judge issued a you know, very important decisions that's gonna allow more absentee ballots to be counted. In Pennsylvania, there's important cases about the use of drop boxes. And so this is important nitty gritty strategic work. And I do think that um, you know, there were some other things that we thought priorities fell short on, but in this regard, that they do deserve credit for their investment in these cases and this kind of litigation. Oh, that's good to hear. And then just in general, I've, I've been happy to hear about the number of examples of those organizations that are on track, are modeling what it means to do this work right and to be on track to spend correctly, target correctly to, so that we can win in November. So all of that's good news. And I wanted to find out for those that are not on the right track, what can they do to improve? I mean, it, here we are, it's early September. In my mind, and I'm sure in a lot of people's minds, it just feels like it, it feels like it might be too late. I, you know, just frankly, I feel like it's really easy to start thinking it's just too late for those organizations to make any difference. They've had this this much time. What difference can they actually make right now? Yeah, I do think at this point in time, but yes, in terms of this crazy year, in terms of all the attacks, in terms of how much harder it's going to be to vote, that it will be even more important to move significant amounts of money to the groups in the key states who can help people get to the polls or to help them cast their ballot by absentee. And so the point of saturation around television ads is fast approaching. But these organizations that are still going to be spending tens of millions of dollars could move millions of dollars to the groups helping with voter turnout in Arizona, in Georgia, and even in the three uh, blue wall states in the Midwest, not just broadly and in the wrong places, but helping to target and support voter turnout efforts in Detroit, in Milwaukee, in Philadelphia. So there's still time and need, and these organizations have the resources to do that. And that would be a very meaningful course correction 
that would make a contribution towards us prevailing in November. So one key example is Arizona, right? Now, a number of different uh, analysts and journalists are concluding that Arizona is actually probably more winnable in 2020 than even Wisconsin, which is a state that's getting all this you know, focus of attention. And I heard there was an NPR report that the white working class share of the Arizona population is like 35% something, which is like meaningfully lower than um, Wisconsin and the, and the other, uh, uh, some of these other states. And there's a huge population of Latinos in Arizona, right? So in 2016, what Arizona and the Arizona groups, there's a coalition of groups that do voter mobilization and voter turnout work. They registered over 100,000 people in like six weeks in like the uh, August, September. Then Clinton campaign came in in October with three and a half million dollars spent on television ads targeting swing white voters and did not invest anything in turning out the Latino vote. And so what you had then was it being a very close contest. Clinton only lost by 90,000 votes, but they still were 500,000 eligible Latinos who didn't vote. And Latino population is even bigger now. So a massive investment in these final two months in Arizona in particular, and I would add also in, in a place like Georgia, but Arizona in particular, there's the infrastructure, the demographics are trending the right way, the polling actually looks good, and you also have a promising Senate pickup there as well as a potential White House race. So in terms of one of the things that can be done most strategically, most significantly, it really would be moving resources in these last two months to Arizona to push that over the top. Okay, before we close, I was hoping we could just take a moment and pause and say a few words about appreciating the life of actor Chadwick Boseman, the actor and star of Black Panther, and many, many other movies. And uh, he sadly passed away and died from colon cancer last week at the age of 43. Yeah, no, there's just been such a huge outpouring of grief um, among like certainly among my friends, the society and culture at large. And so he clearly touched something very deep within people. And I think it also really showed the power of art and culture in our society and in our world to be able to move people. So I know that Charlene, you had posted something that, you know, I, I found very you know compelling um, as a tribute on your Facebook page. So do, can you uh, share what you, what you posted about what he meant to you? Yeah, I'll just sort of sum up what I said. I think what caught me off guard is the moment I read the news, I was so emotional and I really thought to myself like, wow, like how, what's behind all these emotions? Obviously it is deeply sad that he was so young and so talented and to have passed away, you know, way too soon. But I was um, overcome with a lot of different feelings. Mm -hmm. And a large part was hearkening back to when I first sat in that theater two years ago to watch Black Panther. And what I said in my post was, was I tapped into the little girl in me, Chinese American, growing up in New Jersey in an all white community, seeing on screen, large screen for the first time, an entire cast of people of color, heroes, and him as the central superhero who was not white. You know, it was my first time watching a movie where the superhero was not white. And also just everything that he himself conveyed through that character, a certain amount of wisdom and grace and charm and intelligence and um, vulnerability that I think from what I've read is a lot of, of what who he really was. And it's just there's been so much hard stuff going on. These are such challenging times. 
what I wrote was how there's that little girl in me who was like, you know, what we need is that superhero now. And even the actor who plays a superhero is not going to be with us during this time. And so I got flooded with all these emotions. And yeah, so, you know, I'm just really trying to think about lately, like, what is it that he would hope that we could take from his passing in terms of tapping into our own courage during these times, supporting one another how we can, and just sort of being my, our own superheroes in different ways. Yeah, another thing you're saying about the power of culture in terms of representation and how deep that goes is you know what I reflected yeah. on. Because right? I was going, I'm not a like a the Marvel superhero whatever universe or what. That's not my thing. And so the one movie I've seen of all of those was Black Panther because of what it represented in our society. And that, yeah, I mean, that's the power of the talent and the representation, you know, really driving home and really getting that message. And it really harkened me back to when I was in high school and thinking about why this, what I'm going to share, had such a big impact on me. I went to see the movie Officer and a Gentleman, which in reflection is like an extremely problematic movie. I saw that movie nine times in two weeks when I what? was in high school. Oh, wow. And I was, and so I thought back on that. Why was that, right? This was pre-Jesse Jackson, pre-Spike Lee. And you had the commanding black figure in a leadership role, powerful position. It was like, it struck something deep in me. And so that I think is the power of what this culture and these representations and these uh, that art and culture can do in ways that really resonate and reverberate um, across the population. And it's something that we often don't pause to appreciate and we don't really realize and appreciate in, in, in politics as well. So I'm really glad that you brought that up so we can reflect on that. Yeah. And I, I know for Chadwick Boseman, he was clearly aware and he was verbal about how meaningful it was for him to have the opportunity to inspire so many young African-American boys and girls to be able to see themselves and their their community members up on the screen and represented that way and that it's it's really important. All right. So that is all the time we have for this episode. Thank you, Dr. Julie Martinez Ortega, for joining us. Thank all of you for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. You can find the full report cards that we discussed in this episode at our website, democracyincolor.com. And you can also sign up for our mailing list there as well. Please help us get the word out about the podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker, with support from Charlene Chang and April Elkier. Recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio of San Francisco. Until next time, keep the faith.